Are you trying to create a podcast but don't have the money for all the equipment it takes? Maybe not so great with all the editing? Not sure how to distribute your podcast once you have everything recorded? Well, look no further because Anchor is here to help. Anchor is the easiest way to make podcasts. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your computer or phone. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. And best of all, it's free. We looked at so many different distribution websites before finding Anchor and wish we had found it sooner. They even set you up with sponsors they think will fit the vibe of your podcast, which you can accept or decline at any time. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Happy podcasting! Hey, you want to grab a drink? Hey guys, welcome to Morbidly Intoxicated. This week, we will be talking about the case of Paul Mandrowski. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Sierra. Hi. This week, I'm going to tell you about Paul Mandrowski. I first heard about his case um, when I started getting into podcasts, and I started with this podcast called Reply All. And normally they do, you know, a lot of tech. That's their thing. But one of the i believe she's a producer one of the producers she came to the host with a story and it was about this guy who it started off as tech but it went into kind of like a true crime uh he runs a blog from prison Hmm. he's in a maximum security prison they really be blogging up in there (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's really interesting. So I, I started listening to that, and I looked up his case to see if anyone had said anything about it, um, because he he says he didn't commit this murder. Mm-hmm. Um, his story's a little complicated. They always say that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, nobody's really talked about it. So I'm going to tell you about Paul. Uh, Paul was born November 30th in 1974, so he's 45 years old. He was diagnosed with autism and didn't speak until he was about five years old. Uh, He grew up in the West DuPage County suburbs of Chicago. So in 1990, he transferred to Lincoln Way High School for unnamed reasons. Uh, It doesn't directly say anywhere, like on his blog, Um, Because his his mom started a new blog for him, but in some of his blog posts, he talks about how um, they just moved to a different suburb. Mm -hmm. That was the entire reason they moved. Um, While he was here, he overcame many neurological difficulties and often uh, graduated with honors and excelled in sports. So he's incredibly smart. He has a very high IQ. I believe he said in the interview that he did with Reply All's producer, Shruti Penmanini, he has an IQ of, I believe, 130. So yeah. he's really high-functioning. Uh, exactly, and he's very good at sports. He's a very tall guy. He's about, I believe when I looked it up, it said he was 6'1". Mm. And even then, like, he was that tall around, you know, around the time he was 18. 
He was generally a loner in high school, and he was disconnected from social gatherings. And he would oftenly, like, physically shove people in the hallways of his high school because, you know, like he says, he was the loner. Nobody liked him. Um, really doing great to help your case there. Right, exactly. <laughs> Pe- well, people used to call him Satan, and he liked it. He wanted people to call him that. Yeah, it's so, kind of a mood, but... Right. <laughs> Before I get into his case in depth, since his case and his trial is complicated and has a lot of moving factors, I want to talk about his blog, which is what Reply All generally went over. Uh, Like I said, it started off as just, it was a tech, and then it moved into true crime. So he started his blog on the inside in 2009, and this webpage is still up. Um... He stopped writing for a few months because he was in an argument with his mother who helps him run and publish the blog. But his blog is still active and he's still writing. So his original blog, let me pull it up. It's just Paul Madrowski on the inside. You can find it at paulmadrowski.blogstop.com. And I believe sometime last year or maybe two years ago, they started a new blog for him and it's called justiceforpaul.org uh, and this one his mom has all the background information on the case the timeline uh, where you can write to paul and then just some photos and expositions that he wants made public so the way his blog works is he handwrites his blog entries snail mails them to his mother and then his mother types it out makes a few grammar and spelling corrections sends the final product back to paul before she posts it so he can see what it's going to look like online and once paul has confirmed it he might make some edits and say hey can you actually add this in or i want this to be you know in a different spot so he'll move it um she publishes it Mm. so The reason they got into an argument was it first started off as only small grammar and spelling mistake corrections that his mom was doing, but then she ended up taking out, like, the fact that he's an atheist. She didn't want that. She, I believe she's Christian, she's very religious, you know, and she doesn't want to believe that her son's an atheist. She took out things that thought would show Paul in a bad light. Things like, he would talk about things from his childhood, just um, stories that he had. And he was kind of a little bit of a, like, violent kid. He got into a really rough crowd around the age of, like, 15, 16. So she kind of admits that. Uh, His blog entries are about anything he wants to talk about and anything he wants to share with the world. So some of the interesting ones that I found were this one from 2014 about his childhood memories where he said he tried to to date a a girl um oh no he tried to date a few girls at once and he would get in trouble and how uh how one of his ex-girlfriends had passed away from an overdose that blew his mind he's like i can't believe the sweet girl i once used to date you know overdosed Um, There was also another one that I really liked, and it it was more recent, within the past, like, year or so, where he described what his week like was in prison down to every meal. He wrote down every single meal that he had. He's like, oh, I woke up on Monday and I had this. So 
He mentioned that the prison stopped giving the inmates fruit juice to help slow down the amount of hooch that was being made. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Uh, hooch is a clever name for toilet wine that is made of fermented juice. Paul said he had tried a sip of it, but he didn't like it. And he didn't even like the expensive wine that he had tried when he wasn't in prison. He also mentioned that inmates actually really liked hooch and they could drink bottles of it before they got drunk. Um, they even kept drinking it, even though it gave them diarrhea. Yeah. And, like, they would just vomit everywhere. And he's like, oh, they still drank it. They still loved it. (laughs) (laughs) They still downed bottles of it every day. Okay, so that's a little backstory to Paul. So, onto his case. Like I said, I took an interest in his case one day after listening to the first podcast I had ever listened to. That was Reply All. Reply All is definitely worth the listen. They have a four-part episode about this. Um, I believe it's episodes 62 through 67 or 63 through 67. They're very good. She actually gets in contact with Paul directly from the prison. And at the very end, she actually goes and meets him in person and does an in-person interview. So it's very interesting. She has exclusive interviews with Paul and with Robert Ferracci, who is going to be a big part of this story. So like I said, after I listened to the Reply All episodes, I Google Paul's name to see if anyone had done any television specials, maybe another podcast... Because it's just such an unusual case. Just even the way that they were tried, it was super, it's super unusual. I've never heard anything like this. It might just be me, but I don't think it's very common. The only things I saw were his blog, the four Reply All episodes, and a few news articles from NWI Times in 1993 and the Chicago Tribune, 1993 to 1995. So let's talk about Robert Ferracci. Paul met Robert Ferracci through mutual friend, um, Brian, who was also into some illegal activities. He was a bookie and took bets on sports games. Nothing super scandalous. Right? Right. 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 When Paul was 18, he moved in with Robert Ferracci and his wife, Rose. Robert was an ex-convict, and he had recently been released for selling cocaine. He was seven years older than Paul, and Paul described Robert Ferracci as the Joe Pesci character from Goodfellas. Okay. I was going to say, I don't know if you've ever seen that. Yes, that's a great movie. How would you describe Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas for people who haven't seen it? Okay. Joe Pesci's like the little crazy one. Right, exactly. Yeah, he's like always into like just crazy shit, and he's like doing everything over the top. He's short. Yeah, he's the short one with, like, the kind of higher voice. Yeah, he says And everyone's like, yo, chill. (laughs) Because he's always, like, pulling guns on people for no reason and playing, like... He's fucking crazy. Yeah, he loses his mind in that movie. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's the the short guy that you don't want to mess with. Yeah, because he, like, you don't know how he's going to react. Right. So, here's what all went down with um, Joe Pesci here. And, Mm. uh... Oh, gosh. (laughs) No, here's what all went down with Robert Ferracci and Paul Madrowski. They knew this man named Dean Fawcett, who was around 22 at the time. And Dean Fawcett had opened a checking account so he could start depositing fraudulent checks. So around Christmas, he began to start writing the fraudulent checks, stealing thousands of dollars around different types of merchants. He would buy his girlfriend expensive jewelry, buy his friends food and gifts, 
Robert and Rose started to get into the fraudulent check scheme and continued with it all the way past New Year's Day to increase the amount of proceeds. Paul had said that he was upset with with uh, Dean Fawcett, who started the, the checking account, because he had snuck into Madrowski's parents' room and stole checks to cash in their name as well. Remember that for later. Yeah. They were all a part of this. Like they were all Paul a part. and Robert and Dean and everyone. Yes, they were all a part of it until he had stolen. Stole from his parents. Yeah, like, exactly. I don't think Paul partook in writing checks, but he... He just knew about it, oh, at least. Excuse me. Yeah, he definitely knew about it. He definitely knew about it. And he wasn't upset about it because, like I said, Dean would buy him things. I'm pretty sure he bought him, like, a really nice watch and some sunglasses, from what I remember. You don't steal from inside the group, though, dude. I know. Like, I, it, it was a bad move. That's messed up. <laughs> Especially their parents. Yeah. So, like, Paul's mom says on um, justiceforpaul.org... She says, I started noticing checks going missing between this number and this number. And so when she talked to Paul about it, he was just irate. Mm. So that was in December of 1992. So on January 18th of 1993, an unidentified body was discovered along the tracks in Barrington, Illinois. The body was unidentified for some time because it was found without a head, arm, or hands. Eventually, they had figured it was most likely Dean Fawcett, and they suspected foul play, which is a shocker because he was missing less. Yeah, how... (laughs) First, how did they know it was Dean? That one, I'm not sure. It didn't really get into that. This was what year again? Sorry. 1993. Oh, okay. So they could probably that. Right. I believe it was just, like, some eyewitness account saying that he hadn't been seen for a while. Yeah, I think they had DNA in that time. That was, like... It's not like the 60s where you just mopped it all up and said, all right, I'm throwing it in a box. Let's get back to it. Foul play. Really? think it might be foul play? Yeah, exactly. Oh, he's missing a head. No head armor. Yeah. It was, and it wasn't both of his arms. It was like one of his arms and both of his hands were gone. Mm, For thieving, that's a thing. Like the mob, you know? Is it? Yeah, they cut off your hand. And for like other countries, they cut off your hands if you steal. Yes, um, I saw that in an episode of The Office. (laughs) So to backtrack a little, you have to know that there was a massacre in Palatine at the Brown's Chicken Restaurant just days before they found Dean Fawcett's body. So now back to the story, because the Brown Chicken Massacre is a story for another day. The FBI was called in to further investigate the murders at the Brown Chicken Restaurant and the death of Dean Fawcett. The police and the FBI thought they were connected somehow. And I have a map, actually, to show you just how far away the Brown Chicken Massacre was from where Paul grew up. Okay. Okay, so here's a screen grab. I typed in Palatine, Illinois, from where he was uh, when he went to high school, because that's the last lone location I can find on him. I couldn't really find a... uh, an address for their for the house that they lived in with Robert Faraci. Gotcha. So I'm just gonna assume it was around this area where he lived. But as you can see, that's just kind of the area that. Okay, um, so Palatine is where the, the massacre happened. Yes. Okay, and then this is where he like 
around where he lived. Yeah, exactly. It's just like an hour away. Right, exactly. Right. About an hour away. If you want to... Uh, Unless you take the scenic route, apparently. I was going to say, if you, uh, you want to take the bus, it's about four hours. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's about where... Um, where the Palatine massacre happened. Okay. So, it's about an hour drive, which, I mean, if you wanted to go kill a bunch of teens, I guess you wouldn't mind the drive, but we find... <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> you just want to go kill a bunch of people. The that's hour drive really isn't what that you bad. Like, that's your vacay for the day. Right. You know? <laughs> Take a day, little day trip. Yeah. <laughs> Most people's commute right there, so... <laughs> Uh, but we find out later they're unrelated. Anyway, wait, what? <laughs> there, no. So, I'll get, I'll get there. I'll get there. But they, on uh, a whirlwind here. Oh, I know. So, basically, the FBI thinks that those two murders are connected: the massacre and the murder of Dean Fawcett. Mm-hmm. Which I'm gonna get there. Just, <laughs> just hang in with me, okay? All right, I'm, I'm hanging in. Okay. So we find out later that they're unrelated. Rose ends up calling one of her mafia connections, and I say that in quotes because her mafia connection isn't really Italian. He, I, I think he was putting on a front, is what the police say, that uh, knew this guy. Um, he even changed his last name to sound more Italian. Okay. But she reached out to her mafia connections, which turned out to be an informant for the FBI. She says that her husband came home one night covered in blood and thinks he knows something about the Palatine murders. It was only a few days later until the police arrested Robert Ferracci for the murder of Dean Fawcett. So here's where it gets a little confusing. When the cops interview Robert, they get an interesting tale about how Paul Madraski did all of the killing and that he brought Robert along as a witness. On April 28, 1993, Paul was arrested at gunpoint based off of Robert and Rose Faraci's accusations. So basically, Robert had told told police, no, I didn't commit it, I was taken hostage. Uh, Rose, years later, confessed to lying about the accusations she made against Paul to keep her husband out of prison. Paul was 19 when he was arrested, and he was taken to a secret location where they kept him for two days without representation and without granting him his phone call. Mm-hmm. That's illegal. <laughs> exactly. No, he kept... He said, I'm not talking without a lawyer. I want to talk... To, uh, I want to talk to a lawyer. Oh my God. Where's my phone call? Where am I? I need to call my mom. Like, nothing. And they berated him. That's 1993. Yeah, he was arrested in April of 1993. So Madraski remained silent and requested representation. His refusal to cooperate and the fact that he isn't very emotionally expressive because of his autism made him more suspicious to police and his jury. Let's talk about some of the evidence that didn't hold up in court against Paul. The first piece of evidence that they tried to use against Paul was a map book that he had in his car. And they tried to say that Paul had marked where he was going to bury the body in the map book. He drew a little map of it. No, he had, like, a map book, like an actual, like an atlas. Oh, okay, and he, in a way, it was, like, X marks the spot? Pretty much. That's what police were trying to say. Okay. But the map book that Paul had in his car with the mark on it, it was a publisher error. His defense team bought multiple copies of the same map book from the publisher, and they all had that mark on it. It was Mm. in every single copy. Okay, so it wasn't, like, a big X with a circle around it drawn in Sharpie. It was, like, a little... No, it was, like, a 
Like a dot on the map. Exactly. Okay. It was just a freak coincidence that that's where his body ended up. Okay. Basically. Uh, the second piece of evidence they tried to use was Rose Faraci's testimony against Paul. Remember, that's Robert's wife. So Rose later came out and said that everything she told the police was a lie and that her and Robert conspired together to frame Paul so they would both be free from prison. Her testimony was useless after that. So I'm going to tell you- I'm waiting for the kicker here. (laughs) You said he was in prison. It it gets worse. It gets worse. So I'm going to tell you about the strangest trial I have ever read about. Okay. Uh, I honestly didn't even know that this was legal. I didn't... It doesn't seem ethical it's to me. It's probably not, just it's, by what you told me. It was 19... It was like, the 1990s, so I mean, yeah, it probably wasn't. Because literally holding him without his legal counsel for two days can get a case thrown out. Nowadays. You know, that uh, it's supposed to. Just wait, you're going to get more money. Oh, good. So... <laughs> I love that you picked a law one, because you know it's fine. No, they had two separate juries... Robert and Paul got tried at the exact same time. They had two separate defenses, but it was the state attorney versus Paul Madrowski and the state attorney versus Robert Faraci. But they had the trial at the same exact time, which I thought was a little strange. They had two separate juries that would be brought in and out at separate times. Paul's jury wouldn't be there for Robert's defense and Robert's jury wouldn't be present for Paul's defense and there would be times that both juries would be in at the same time. However, Robert and Paul had separate defense attorneys, like I said. The trial started in January of 1995 and Farachi's jury was moved out of the courtroom when his wife testified and Paul's jury was not allowed to hear Robert's testimony of the night. Wait, so you, what? <laughs> you mean that they literally had the trial at the exact same time, like same courtroom, and they kept bringing the juries in and out? That's what I'm saying. What? Isn't that I weird? I have literally never heard of that before. Right, exactly. And I thought it was just me. I was like, no. oh, maybe it was just, you know, something weird I haven't heard about. I have never heard of that. That's insane. And it is. So... The juries only heard part of the stories. They didn't get to hear Robert's testimony. They didn't get to hear Rose's testimony. All of it seemed really weird to me. So during the trial, Paul's defense used the two pieces of evidence to prove his innocence. Uh, Then Paul spoke up and said he let Robert Faraci borrow his car, knowing well that he was going to murder Dean Fawcett. Robert Faraci had been talking about it, how he was going to murder Dean Fawcett. Paul said, yeah, sure, you can borrow my car. Bro. I know, that's, that, that makes you an accomplice. Exactly. Okay, so, makes him an accomplice. The validity of Robert's testimony was never questioned during the trial because Paul's statement was uncorroborated. So nobody knew, oh yeah, you know, Paul said he's gonna loan Robert his car because Robert's been saying for a week that he's gonna murder Dean Fawcett. He kept almost bragging about it is what people had said. There were a few things that Paul's defense left out. The fact that he is autistic, which explains his, um, they said he was cold. Yeah, the weird emotional state or the unusual emotional state. Exactly. They said he was cold and that's why, that's basically their one reason for prosecuting him. Oh, we've seen that one before. (laughs) I know, it's, it's sad. So the fact that his Miranda rights were violated and he was held for two days in an unloaned location without representation. He was brutally interviewed for those two days. They also forgot uh, that Paul had had a witness alibi putting him in his car 50 miles away from the crime scene. They never called him to testify. What? 
Yeah. They also never called the sister up to testify because the sister had an alibi for Paul as well. His defense was not great. Oh my gosh. Literally just the fact that they held him without representation. Oh, I know. It's bad. So the prosecutor claimed that Paul was just as guilty as Robert Ferracci due to the law of accountability. They thought Paul was lifeless and cold looking. (laughs) Robert Ferracci's trial was very different. The state brought up witness after witness claiming that Ferracci either bragged about or told them about killing Dean Fawcett. A week before Dean Fawcett had disappeared, Robert told mob man, this is the mob man I was telling you about. Mm. Uh, His name is Richard Lantini. I don't remember his real last name. He told Richard that he was planning on killing Dean Fawcett, but once Dean disappeared, Faraji had told everyone who had asked about him that he relocated to California without a word. So he was like, oh yeah, he just up and vanished. (laughs) Super believable. (laughs) Right. No questions asked. Didn't say bye to any of you guys. There were also numerous officers that took the stand and said that Robert's story had changed multiple times and there were many inconsistencies when they were doing the interview. They even took Robert to the crime scene and he had pointed out evidence that haven't even been discovered. (laughs) So he was just going around like, oh yeah, police, look at this piece of evidence. Oh shit, I dropped that knife over there. I didn't even notice. (laughs) Oh, you missed all this blood? Cool. You didn't see that footprint? I totally have those shoes in my closet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) so the reason the jury overlooked this information is because robert faraci kept his calm and was very collected when he was testifying on his own behalf so they basically said he kept his calm in a stressful situation so that must mean he's innocent i am so confused Um, so Faraci had played up his story by saying that after Paul made him watch the murder of Dean Fawcett, he continued to live with Paul for fear of his life and the lives of his loved ones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew you'd like that one. <laughs> the prosecution dismissed Faraci's testimony, saying that it was a yarn he was spinning, which I agree. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> I, I think he was covering his ass, but that's just me. <laughs> oh my gosh. After two days, Farachi's jury came back with a verdict of not guilty. They thought the testimony Robert gave was definitely weird, but the prosecution had failed to prove without reasonable doubt that Farachi was guilty. So let me let me tell you, Paul's jury heard none of this. Paul's jury did not know that Robert was acquitted at this time. So Paul's jury took four days to come to a conclusion of his sentence. Robert's jury took two. So the juries were sequestered. Sequestered. (laughs) The juries were sequestered in different rooms. So the thing where it gets tricky is because the cases were ongoing, that they, sometimes they can't know certain information from his case. And they can't, the verdict specifically they can't know because it affects Paul's case. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, I'd have to like look more at it, but they probably could have, no, because they were being tried at the same crime. That's why they can't like use him as a witness. Yeah. They can't, like, bring Robert up on the stand and be like, hey. But I just think it's... It gets a little tricky. I think it's a little weird. Although they already are being tricky. Like, they have the jury. It's, you don't have two different courtrooms or something. I... Yeah, I don't The know. state attorney was just lazy. You know? Just wanted to do it all at once. Right. So the jury took four days to convict Pomodrowski guilty. On what evidence? I'm getting there. Oh, God. Because it's none. Um, <laughs> Spoiler alert. Right. None there is all. none. There was some things from his childhood. Like I said, he was a little... 
he was a little messed Still as a has kid. has nothing to do with the current case. Yeah, exactly. So, I'm like, I, I I'll get there. <laughs> so, since the juries were sequestered separately, Paul's jury was unaware that they just convicted Paul as an accomplice to a man that was acquitted two days prior. Oh, they were charging him as an accomplice. As an accomplice. Okay, yes. why did I miss that part? So Okay, never mind. So, I'll take back the acquitted thing then, because... That directly affects his case. Exactly. I thought they were being tried separately for first degree. No. Because they had... Okay. No, no, no. He was supposed to be... Yeah, he was convicted as an accomplice. To a crime that the other guy was acquitted from. Exactly. Oh my god. So, one jury member said that they convicted Paul based on the fact that he was, like I said, cold when they were talking about their dead friend, and that he was technically an accomplice because he loaned his car to Robert, knowing Robert had planned on killing Dean. So, even if he wasn't in the car, is what they're saying, that even though it was his car and he loaned him the car... Which is technically true, yeah. Which is technically true. It is true. Paul had a sentencing hearing to see if he was eligible for the death penalty, which in... (laughs) I know. (laughs) Which sounds ridiculous, right? That's insane. Um, So these hearings are just formalities in the state of Illinois. Ultimately, the judge decided to give him life without the possibility of parole. As an accomplice. So... Wait, debating capital punishment on an accomplice charge is a formality? In Illinois, yeah. There, well, no, not not just even with his case. Death penalty, um, like, eligibility, quote-unquote eligibility, <laughs> I, I learned, well, at least back in the 90s, was a formality. So they oh just kind of go over the case. They don't have a jury. They just kind of go over yeah, it. Yeah, it's just a sentencing hearing. That's crazy, right. though, that that's on the table for a... An accomplice charge. Right. So in 1995, Paul went away um, to a maximum security prison for life without the possibility of parole. Are you kidding? No, he's been in there for 25 years. He's is he, he's still in prison? Yes. What? He's he's in his 40s. He got put away when he was 19. Or yeah, 19. Well, he got arrested when he was 19. So they had to hell had to have hold him. Yeah, trials can take some time, though. Sometimes people aren't tried for, like, years later. Yeah, but they have to hold them, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, if he was remanded without bail, which he seems like he was. Yeah. Um, So, Paul had his first appeal in 1998, claiming that there were six errors during the original trial. Six. You don't even need those. You need the one where the guy who you were accomplice to was acquitted. Right. That's what I was saying. I I didn't understand why. I've seen this before, too, and it's so annoying. Really? It's like, uh, how? Paul's not the only injustice. No. And it's <laughs> all those weird states. The other one's in Wyoming. Oh. We'll get there. Okay. <laughs> we'll make our way across the U.S. So there were six... No offense to those states. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, I feel like we're going to be talking about Washington a lot, too. Oh, Washington's insane. Lots of fun. Like, I mean, in a horrible way, you know? <laughs> Lots of good, horrible murders. (laughs) So, the errors were holding him against his will for questioning, Mm. the judge's refusal to grant curative instructions, meaning they didn't tell the jury that Robert Faraci had been acquitted, Um, and the other four were the testimony of Brian Palaz, who stressed the fact that Paul never said he planned on harming Dean Fawcett. Brian Palaz is just another person in their 
The whole circle. Circle. Right. With all this evidence, the court decided that life without parole was not an abuse of the jury's discretion, although it did raise some questions regarding his case. Can you believe that? I can't. I literally can't process that. So When was this appeal, did you say? 1998. Okay. That was his very first appeal. So it took him three years to get his first appeal. Okay. Because he got officially charged in 95. Mm-hmm. So Paul's defense tried to file another appeal in 2001 but due to some clerical and ethical error his defense lost his license to practice law he had apparently uh criticized the work of the judge on the first appeal he had also copied segments of paul's direct appeal and simply listed issues that had already been cited by paul's original defense attorney on his original appeal so basically they the court's they want a fresh appeal. They don't yeah, want they some don't copy want and paste yeah. They need new points. Right. So, and, I mean, he was sitting there talking shit about the judge, so. the Wait, this was the defense attorney? Yes. His, <laughs> his second defense attorney for his for his second appeal was like, oh, <laughs> man, this guy sucks. Judge went, ooh, oh, give, really? me, give me that law license. Couldn't he then, just, like, file something for... I'm getting there. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So basically, he had copied original documentation and didn't provide any new or concrete arguments that would hold up in court while also insulting the judge on Paul's original appeal. So in the Reply All podcast, Shruti Penumanini, which again I said is one of the producers. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. It's so fun to say. (laughs) Penumanini. Penumanini. I can't even say. Um. So, Shruti found an interesting testimony that was given about the day of Dean Fawcett's death. So, during Paul's trial, his sister, like I said, was supposed to testify that Paul was at their parents' house for their father's birthday. But as Shruti found out, they believe Paul and his sister got the days mixed up. A woman who saw Robert and Paul pick up Dean Fawcett in Paul's car that day said that Paul and Robert got home on December 28th together from the train tracks. Paul immediately took a shower while listening to some heavy metal band. When asked about this information, Paul became very distraught and very defensive. But it wasn't defensive about the fact that he was seen with Dean Fawcett and Robert Faraci on the day that Dean died. And again, I don't know how credible the source is she's choosing to stay anonymous but this is just what i gathered from reply all and this girl came about later after his trial yes this witness Mm -hmm. okay exactly um i it's somebody that i guess had reached out to shruti or shruti reached out to i'm not entirely sure i believe it was she reached out to shruti um, so when asked about this ma- information, he became distraught and offensive. He basically said, why would I listen to this metal band? Why not any others? He was listing out comparable music to the one that he had been supposedly listening to. So instead of like, oh, I heard you were listening to Metallica while you were showering. He's like, oh, why would it have to be Metallica? Couldn't it be, couldn't it be X, Y, and Z? He wasn't arguing the fact that there was a witness that placed him exactly. with Robert on the day of the crime. Exactly. Robert and Dean. But my thing is, wouldn't his sister and his brother-in-law know their dad's birthday and would get it right? Because their dad's birthday was the 28th, which is the day that they found Dean Fawcett's body. 
So that's where but, I'm kind of yeah. Up so is she saying that that he was together on his dad's birthday or just for his dad's birthday? On his dad's birthday, they were all at their house having a party. But that was the day that Dean's body was found, not the day that he was killed. That's true. I it didn't say anything. Because he was missing for like a week, right? Um, I believe so. I couldn't find anything about the decomposition of the body. Okay. Any? They're saying that they hadn't seen him for like a week. So right, I couldn't. I couldn't find anything that had given an estimate about how long he had died or how long he had been dead. How long he had died? How long Sorry. he had died? <laughs> yeah, probably like an hour. <laughs> So, going off of how Paul reacted um, at the end of the Reply All episodes, Struthy didn't really have much confidence in his innocence. Like I said before, Paul had a kind of rough childhood. Not rough childhood, but growing up was was rough for him. So, when he was a teenager, he kind of acted out a little bit. Um, They also pointed out in the Reply All episode that... Paul was almost convicted of breaking into his ex-girlfriend's house while her and her family were away. Uh, They were probably about 15, 16, maybe 17, um, and stabbing their dog. Yeah, Yeah, they came home and they had found some stuff was rearranged in their house. Photos of her and Paul that weren't on her nightstand were back on her nightstand. <gasps> right. And so when he was questioned about this, he said, no, it wasn't me. She, he said, I did call her and leave a quote unquote joke on her answering machine, but it didn't sound like a joke. He said something like, do you know what a pincushion is? Because that's what I'm going to do to your family. Holy shit. <laughs> I know. What? He, he said, oh, she knows I was joking around. That's how we joked around. I was like, Excuse oh my me? God. I know me and you joke around a lot. <laughs> that's but, a bit. Right. Who else is putting photos up of him on her nightstand? He claimed it was one of his friends that was mad at the girl for breaking up with Paul. What? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so, so that one's not adding up for me. Right, so that's a little weird. But again... Someone stabbed her dog. Someone stabbed her dog. <gasps> yeah. God. But All again, right. cool. it goes back to the fact of he might have done a shitty thing, but there's no evidence <laughs> to prove he, he murdered things. <laughs> a, sh- a shitty thing. A shitty thing. <laughs> okay. I broke into your house and I... Stabbed your, your dog. Stabbed your dog and told you I want to use your pin cushion. I know I did a shitty thing. <laughs> but anyway, oh, so that was all just circumstantial. That's why Shruthi kind of leans more towards that he's not innocent. I'm kind of leaning more towards the fact that he might be. There's some <laughs> crazy. Yeah, he's a little crazy, but <laughs> there's just some things that like they didn't have evidence in the case, and that's why I'm saying like, okay, you can't prove it. You can't prove that Robert Ferracci did it. Yeah, it's beyond a reasonable doubt, and I don't feel like with the evidence they laid out in his case that they have that. Exactly. Especially when the other guy got acquitted. Exactly. Well, and Robert Ferracci had more evidence lined up against him than Paul did. Yeah. Which is what I'm saying. And when he was asked about it, because Shruthi did get an interview with him, too, as soon as she started asking questions about the case, he's like, I don't want to think about that day. Why are you asking me these questions? Why are you on the podcast to talk about it? <laughs> exactly. So that's what like, I was What did you wondering. think you were here for? She tried to reach out to some other people, but they wouldn't respond. Um, Hmm. I just, I mean, and even Rose's testimony, like, oh, we made all of it up, so Robert 
and I wouldn't be in jail. That should have, the whole case should have been thrown out. There were so many things done wrong. Yeah, we saw mistrial, I feel like. A mistrial. They needed new evidence and new. Yeah. The evidence that yeah. Robert Fratchy pointed <laughs> out. <laughs> right? Yeah, literally. Um, so fast forward to today. Paul is still in prison and trying to file a successive post-conviction petition mm. because he is out of appeals. He can no longer apply for appeals. Mm-hmm. He got the one, and then the other one got thrown out. So What was his third appeal? You get three appeals. It uh, doesn't say. Uh-huh. No, it just says that he can't file for any more appeals. Honestly, I don't... they probably don't have anything else to, Exi- to do, you exactly. know? Exactly. Like... So I'm wondering if it's just he had the two appeals, and then they're like, no, you don't have any evidence. File something yeah, else. That, that honestly might have been. His that... legal counsel could have said that. Um, so that was in 2015, oh, yeah. and I haven't found any new information on the on the blog post, the the Justice for Paul that his mom runs. It still says that he's trying to file this petition since 2015. Yeah, has he even filed it? Yeah. Dang. So um, you can find all this information in extreme detail at justiceforpaul.org, which his mother runs. It has information about Paul, his case, the timeline of event, events leading up to the case and after the trial. Contact information in case you want to send Paul some letters. And also his blog. Like I said, his original blog is still up. And I don't think he posts on that one anymore or his mom doesn't post on that one. They post on the new blog, The Justice for Paul, but if you want to go back and read through it, it's palmadrowski.blogspot.com. He still writes to this day for his blog after taking a small break. Uh, if you would like to reach out to Paul, you can go to Justice for Paul and either write an online message, which his mother prints out and mails to him, or you can write him a letter and send it directly at palmadrowski number B65896. P.O. Box 112 in Joliet, Illinois, area code 60434. So, hearing all this information, we would love to hear your opinion. Do you think Paul should have gotten acquitted like Robert, since he was just considered an accomplice for letting Robert borrow his car? Do you think he is guilty? Send us your thoughts at morbidlyintoxicatedpod at gmail.com and also check out Reply All in their episodes on this case. Paul's story is covered in episodes 64 through 67. Happy listening! Morbidly Intoxicated is hosted by Lily Bishop and Sarah Lawson. Recording and production by Robert Shepard. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Morbidly Intoxicated Pod for updates and photos from the cases we cover. If you liked our show, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Theme music was written by Taylor Hertz. His website is taylorhertz, spelled T-A-Y-L-O-R-H-E-R-T-Z dot com. Artwork was done by Kelly Carroll, who you can find on Instagram at artbykelly, Kelly spelled K-E-L-L-I. Photos done by Javi Romero. His Instagram is at Orange Hobby. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Morbidly Intoxicated.